Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Thank you for coming in today, Ms. Wolf. Our brand, Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, is very excited to work with a marketing firm like Wolf, Bear, Duck, and Goose. Maybe you can begin by showing us one of the sample commercials you've made. Or I could just send you a telegram. Uh, what? What do you mean? We don't make commercials anymore at Wolf, Bear, Duck, and Goose. The 30-second spot is extinct, like telegrams, typewriters, the thing that makes coffee but isn't a K-cup, oven mitts, Jennifer Aniston. I didn't know some of those things were extinct. The point. Nobody watches commercials. We need to introduce you in some different way. Like, you could sponsor a sunset. People totally still watch sunsets. So while they're watching one, their phones all go off and a voice says... This sunset is made possible by self-unloading Mop and Sea. Self-fulfilling prophecy is our brand, not the other thing you said. Wait, I'm getting a message on my Slapnet. What's that? The thing after the thing after Snapchat. I have the pre-beta version. It won't be released until it stops causing blinding headaches. Here's the message. Nobody looks at sunsets or the moon or flowers anymore. They look at their phones. That's all they do. Then your plan won't work. Let's go to the backup. What do people need who look at phones all the time? Mm, I give up. Someone to sponge food off their faces and clothes. We find out who those people are and we pay them to whisper your brand name to the people on their phones. Home health aides are influencers. Write that down. You write it down. I don't know how to write. Literacy is so two zero zero zero. You mean... 2000. So is knowing how to say years. Look, I'm just flushed with mojo for this product. I'm going to run out and hire three partners and then have a meeting with them. So Wolf, Bear, Duck, and Goose is... Just me, at the moment. Oh, that's fine. Self-fulfilling prophecy isn't anything but a brand name so far. God, I love living in 2017. Let's do a show about all of this. And now the founder of the Museum of Waxy Yellow Buildup, Colin McEnroe. So there's this commercial that... Um... <laughs> that I have seen, I don't know, a bunch of times. I think it was running about a month ago. And and so and I liked it because it made me a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> and then I would try to describe it to people and no one would know what I was talking about. And so uh, and so that means two things uh, before I introduce our guest. It means one of two possible things. One thing is that the commercial only lives inside my television set and it doesn't appear anywhere else. Um or that I'm hallucinating it. Those kinds of possibilities. And the other possibility is that just nobody else that I know has seen this commercial because people don't watch commercials as much anymore. And another thing that people don't do is have enough commonality around commercials so that they would have a conversation, that they could participate in a conversation about that commercial. Uh, so joining us right now, we're going to talk about this a bunch of different ways all day today, um, but at least for the show. Um, we're going to start with Andrew Essex. Uh, his book is The End of Advertising, Why It Had to Die, The Creative Resurrection to Come. Uh, Andrew Essex is the CEO of Tribeca Enterprises, the parent company of the Tribeca Film Festival. Prior to that, CEO of the ad agency Droga5. Uh, and he is the author of The End I just said the end of advertising. Now I'm reading from a script. That's not good. Andrew, so we one thing we know is that people can avoid commercials. And if they can avoid commercials, typically they do avoid commercials, which is why nobody understands which commercial it is that I'm trying to describe to them, right? That's exactly right. 
There's an expression, Netflix and chill, which is a euphemism for hooking up. But when people watch Netflix, they don't see commercials. When people watch Showtime or Amazon Prime or HBO Go, they don't see commercials. Most of the overtop platforms have gotten rid of the television commercial as we know it. Then there's the phenomena of ad blocking. So that's also erasing commercials. So many of the ways that we saw commercials are going away. So there's no commonality there, except perhaps in live sports. Right. And, and the other ways that we know this, there are just, you know, you and I could sit here and cite a million chilling examples here, according to one set of data from something called Alfonso. Mobile device usage peaks during TV's primetime hours and spikes coincide exactly when programs break for commercials. So advertisers are basically paying for you to look at your phone while, they're at, while their ad is on, right? Exactly, exactly. Unless they're somehow tying to the second screen. But that's for the people who are still watching linear television and enduring those breaks. So they never had a way to express their displeasure. Now they can look down on their devices. But as I said before, most of the platforms are commercial-free, or many of the com- platforms are commercial-free or don't incorporate commercials like Snapchat in a traditional way. So the whole, whole paradigm is shifting, and very few people are still actively watching them. Right. So I'm 62, which, among other things, means that for me, Netflix and chill means that the nurse turns the TV on right before they <laughs> artificially lower my body temperature. So, um, But it also means that I grew up in a world where, yeah. like, TV without commercials, well, that might mean PBS or something, but it basically didn't mean anything. TV was commercials, That's right? right. That's that, right. It was intrinsic. So what, what ruined that um, depraved paradise was the, the rise of Things like HBO, right, where you didn't have to watch commercials. Yeah, that's exactly right. You and I are of a certain vintage, um, a little bit younger, but was raised in the same dynamic. We were victims of command and control. There were three networks, which sounds so quaint right now. And there was no option but to have these things interrupted by commercials. That was how the rent was paid, and we had to capitulate. So we live in a completely diametrically opposed universe where there are 435 scripted shows on TV alone, 8,000 new platforms, myriad social media opportunities. So there is no room for anything that's superfluous. So anything that introduces itself as an interrupter or a secondary is immediately discarded. The uh, it's it, One thing that I think is being destroyed in the process, and maybe it's no great loss, I, I don't know, is, I mean, television commercials in particular used to provide us with a kind of common language for talking about all kinds of other things. I mean, where's the beef? Well, I mean, Walter Mondale started yelling, where's the beef in the middle of the debate? He didn't win the election, so maybe that wasn't a great thing to do. But, uh, you know, there were things like that that almost created an American syntax. I mean, see the USA in your Chevrolet. People kind of... Uh, knew a certain language that was based around commercials. And I guess that's just gone. Does that matter? Did we lose anything? I suppose that those who are nostalgic for that era will say that we lost something. You could probably argue that it's made up with catchy little hooks from Justin Bieber tunes. There's always going to be pop culture detritus that passes through the collective mindset. But I'd rather watch an episode of Breaking Bad without commercials than to hear plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Right. Um, although there probably is some kind of meth that does that. Um, 
but uh, or that was maybe an episode Vince Gilligan should have written anyway, <laughs> the plot, plot, fizz, fizz uh, episode. Well, you know, so I mean, the other thing I, we, we should just talk about ways of m- means of remediation. One thing that I've noticed, this is all very anecdotal, but one thing that I've noticed occasionally if I've got the DVR set, like I really fell in love with this, this series called American Crime that was created yeah. by John Ridley. It's just sure. terrific. Felicity Huffman and all these people. But, I, you know, we had the DVR set up for it. But just even the amount of fast forwarding that we were having to do to get through the commercials, it made me aware. The spot load here was like unbelievable. I mean, ABC, they just, I, I, I can't imagine that somebody is sitting there watching that many commercials. You deal with this in the book, right? You talk about Saturday Night Live. One thing you can do is just dial the number of commercials back. Yeah, yeah. I think there are a lot of people experimenting with this right now. Fox just hired a guy named Joe Marchese who's committed to reinventing the number of spots in the load. It's interesting because a lot of the a lot of the channels that are commercial interrupted are still making premium content. So AMC is the big outlier. AMC has programming that rivals what you might see on HBO or Showtime, but they interrupt. And I just don't know anyone who would rather watch Waking Dead. Walking Dead, excuse me, with commercials than without commercials. So what do you do? How do you make the money up? Either you have to have one spot in the middle or one big spot in the beginning, or you ask people to pay, Hmm. pay a fee up front. And I think it's just going to come down to what's the better experience and if people are willing to pay for that better experience. And there are ways to get people to pay without actually paying, which is HBO's brilliance. You don't pay for HBO, you pay for your cable and HBO is included. And that's how they have that beautiful commercial fee paradigm. Right. So, I mean, another thing that you can do with Walking Dead is have Negan use a specific kind of baseball bat. (laughs) (laughs) That's an elegant segue into product placement. Yeah, yeah. That's where I was heading. So take me there. Well, you know, the funny thing is that's not beyond the realm of possibilities. Now, if it was a comedy show and right. he said, you know, I'm going to hit you over the head with this Spalding bat, um, or if there was a way to make it authentic, it would be acceptable. Of course, uh, the HBO show Entourage did this with Avian Tequila. Hmm. There are ways to organically incorporate a brand into content. But they're few and far between. And then there's the Lego movie, which is the apotheosis of idea, that idea where it's not uh, a commercial. It's a film that happens to also be a commercial. But the other thing about the Lego movie is, and I, I do think this is one of the things that has militated against commercials and made us not like them, is, is that the Lego movie, we're in on the joke, you know, and the joke is cited from time to time in the Lego movie right. as well. Nobody is trying to fool anybody about anything. And I think one of the things that people hate about commercials, when they think about commercials, they're thinking about the commercials that try to tell them something which they f- feel is not true. I could not agree more. The, the, the industry has always been in a constant state of tension between authenticity and artifice. And there was a time when you could fool a lot of people with something that was inherently untrue. And I think those days are gone also. And that's for a variety of factors from social media, just to more savvy options. But you, you can no longer trick people. And you must add value to their lives. So that either means entertainment or utility. But the last thing you can ever do is try to trick people with a bunch of horse hockey. Yeah, I I, I do think it's that fakery in particular that we resist. And it's sort of odd, too, um, Andrew, because I think the other thing that I, I believe is that Really, really good commercials, what I think you call sort of the 0.5%, uh, the really best commercials, they're, they're going to find an audience one way or another. And But I also think really, really bad commercials. 
commercials <laughs> are the other thing. I mean, particularly sort of bad local commercials. If Wherever you live, I live in Connecticut, there are these kind of terrible commercials for Bob's Furniture. Sure. I, know, I know Bob Kaufman. Bob Kaufman goes out anywhere. He's mobbed. Um, you know, I mean, in some ways, those kinds of commercials, because they grate against – because they're unsuccessful in deceiving <laughs> us. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably not a strategy that, that can be replicated at scale is to make something so crappy that it achieves virality. <laughs> In most cases, when something's really crappy, like a certain um, carbonated beverage recently found out, they they die a very painful and quick death. So I'd rather see a rush to quality and people aspiring to make something that you and I want to see, because that way I'll share it. It just makes perfect sense. But yeah, but it seems to me a commercial exists, advertising exists in two parts at minimum. At least its success measure exists in two parts. One of them is, can I get you to watch this thing? And the other thing is, can this thing get you to do what I want you to do? So the truth is, that Pepsi ad, I mean, I don't know how many people saw that Pepsi ad. I mean, they didn't see it the way they were supposed to see it, and they didn't see it in the spirit in which they were supposed to see it. But like a lot of people watched that Pepsi ad online. Um, but, but it wouldn't necessarily make you want to buy Pepsi. That's exactly right. So so audience, just actually acquiring audience does not necessarily create a sense of warmth that presumably results in sales, which obviously proves the hypothesis. If you're going to make people buy the product, you might want to make them like the communication. And they actually are the same thing. The product is the form of the communication. So there have been many stories where there have been great, great commercials for terrible, terrible products. And that doesn't work either because people will find out very quickly that the product is terrible. But ideally, you want a kind of unified theory of the universe where you're making great stuff for great products. So one of the things you talk about in this book, The End of Advertising by Andrew Essex, Why It Had to Die and The Creative Resurrection to Come, is things that aren't commercials but are in ways in, well, of presenting the name of who you are. So like City Bike is an example that you give, certainly. If anybody's spent any time in New York City, you've seen a lot of City Bike. But has anybody measured the second part of the City Bike equation? In other words, I see City Bikes all the time. It, I don't think it affects my decision whether or not I do business with Citibank. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, that's a really interesting point. The art and science of advertising has always been a bit of smoke and mirrors. There's an old saying that 50% works. No one knows what 50%. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to the television model, if you saw Mr. Whipple selling Charmin, you felt some warmth towards him, you would go out and buy the toilet paper. But there was uh, no way to accurately measure it. You just saw a bump in sales. What we weren't able to measure is how infuriated people were by bad commercials and whether they didn't buy the product. So now, as brands explore non-traditional forms of advertising, they are looking for new forms of measurement. Now, with the case of City Bike, they saw um, increased brand metrics. People liked the company more. And that was part of their objective. They just wanted people to like them more in light of the financial crisis. They see the number of people using the bikes. They can track the actual progress of the bikes around the planet. So they're getting different types of data. So it all comes down to what the objectives are. But if you're just trying to sell more soda, you really face a complicated world because it's hard to convince people something they will not believe. So what, at the end of the book, you have a, a whole bunch of rules, uh, helpful <laughs> suggestions. And one of them is 
context, know the context that you're in. So let's talk a little bit about Chipotle. Let's, we're really talking about Chipotle pre-Chipotle yeah. food crisis because it's like a whole different thing now. But prior to that, they were doing something kind of different to at least talk to their consumers. Explain that. Yeah, there's a there's a concern that there's no white space left, which means that there's no place where there hasn't been a message um, that that you haven't seen before, a, a new channel. And one example before I get to Chipotle is the trays at the airport. Oh. A couple of years ago, I saw that Zappos had put their logo at the bottom of the tray where you take your shoes off. Mm-hmm. And that was just a novel and clever place to put your logo. It didn't do anything for my life, but I acknowledged its cleverness. So Chipotle, picking up on that same approach, realized that their own packaging was a a channel, a white space. Mm -hmm. And they got the novelist Jonathan Safran Froer to commission a bunch of great writers to write essays on their burrito wrappers, Mm -hmm. on their soda cans, containers, on their bags. And they made the experience of sitting alone eating a burrito a little more fun, a little more valuable. And again, the presumption is that made you like the brand more before the E. coli scare and come into the shops more to buy more burritos. So I applaud that. That's just clever thinking, creating your own new channels, which is what, of course, City Bike is. Right. And, and I, but that's also knowing your audience and it's yeah, knowing yeah. context. I mean, at Chick-fil-A, having the Toni Morrison essay on the rapper is probably not going to... Right, then you could just have biblical uh, <laughs> excerpts on your rappers, which is what they do. So yeah. they know their audience as well. Yeah, that's right. Plagues you have avoided by eating here. <laughs> right. Um, so there's, I mean, there's... Uh, other ways that we can talk about this, but um, one of the things I think you're you're um, quoting Safran Foer in the book, this notion of giving people something as opposed to simply bombarding them with message yeah. and then asking them to buy. And I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about, the notion of giving people something. Now, can that be done more elaborately than a Toni Morrison essay on your burrito wrapper? It can be incredibly elaborate, or it can just be giving you a smile. Mm. I do believe there has to be a value exchange. So we went from this model where you were a couch potato sitting there like a vegetable, passively bombarded with these messages you didn't ask to see. And then the world turned upside down, and now the brands have to give you something that makes your life better, that makes you appreciate them because you have so many ways to tune them out. So that might be a great film, it might be underwriting the arts, it might be fixing a bridge, it might be a cool app that knows when you're proximate to the restaurant you want to go to and provides a discount. But there has to be something that's additive rather than subtractive. Yeah, I I wonder what you think of, for example, one thing that's kind of part of the middle ground uh, between no commercials and some commercials is this you know, presented to you with limited limited yeah. commercial interruptions by blah, blah, blah. So here we are, the, the blah, blah, blah company. What we're going to do is you love this program, so we're going to give it to you. We're not going to bother you that much. We're just going to mention that we're doing this, which is, by the way, very close to the model of the public radio station, which I'm sitting in right now. We have underwriters who do essentially the same thing. How does that work for you? That works for me very well. In fact, I believe that the old models, programming underwritten by brands, it's actually the model that made more sense, and the last 50 years have just been a historic anomaly. So if a brand wants to bring you, as GE Theater did or Mitchell of Omaha's Wild Kingdom did, some great programming, you're more likely to appreciate them than interrupting some great program with a bunch of nonsense. You might even elect the GE guy president at some point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Um, yeah, I think that that works. Here, so here's my uh, crackpot idea. Because um, I, I, I feel like there's a moment that's not being monetized right now. And that's a hard thing to believe in today's media environment. Mm-hmm. There's some actual moment. It, no, as you know, if you watch sports these days, like second base has a sponsor. You know, it's like sure. it's like Xander Bogarts is sliding into the Citibank second base. Um, but here's the moment that's not being monetized. The end of the of the episode that you're watching and your own desperation to see the next episode. Maybe this is being monetized in some way. But what I would do if I were an advertiser, I'd say, we'll actually show you the next episode if you'll agree to watch two commercials. You have to actually watch them, you know, but you don't want to wait till next week to see the next episode. If you'll watch this commercial, this let us talk to you for 60 minutes, 60 seconds. uh, That seems to me like that's giving somebody something that he or she wants. Exactly, and I think that's a brilliant idea. And there are a few players, Hulu, Spotify, have tried things like that. They're essentially saying if you opt in, you could have some kind of discount. I would love it if a brand would say, we will present this next episode to you commercial-free if you just watch this little spot and also make it interesting. But why not? Why not say we're doing something for you, again, rather than annoying you with a message you never asked to see? Right. So uh, yeah, this historical anomaly that we just lived through. And, and you know, I'd forgotten about Mutual of Omaha. And that yeah. was always so great because, yeah. you know, Marlon Brand, uh, Marlon Perkins would say, uh, not Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando would say, we've just seen how the wildebeest eats his young. And, but Marlon <laughs> Perkins would always say, you know, we've always just saw the, how the wildebeest defended her nest. You can defend your nest with Mutual of Omaha. Exactly. You know, the whole thing was all tied together. But the other thing, and let's go back to this 0.5, this half a percent, because the truth is people don't hate all commercials, and there's sort of one holy day a year where everybody wants to watch all the commercials. It's the Super Bowl. The commercials are good, and they're debatable and conversable, and they're water cooler material. And the truth is if you see a really good commercial, I mean, commercial advertising can be art when it's done well. So why not just do that? Why not just have a rule – don't suck. <laughs> From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> what industry has a, has a model in which they produce great work one day of the year and then go back to essentially laziness and widespread mediocrity 364 days a year? It would seem to make sense that you should be great all the time. And I think that's my essential premise is that it doesn't make sense to not always be great. And in fact, it's a business imperative because otherwise you'll be ignored. So last uh, question. Uh, We're talking, by the way, to Andrew Essex. His book is The End of Advertising, Why It Had to Die, and The Creative Resurrection to Come. So let's talk about The Creative Resurrection. We've kind of been talking about it already, ways that you can do things that are not commercials. But, I mean, is is the form itself, I mean, I don't know, five, ten years from now, is the 60-second TV spot going to be the equivalent of like a typewriter where you have to explain it to somebody what it was? It, it might well be. It's such a time of turmoil. My preference would be to be cryogenically frozen and woken up to see how it all turns out. But I don't think anyone really knows. I mean, will Snapchat be around in five years? Will the 30-second spot be around in five years? I think there's going to be a great shaking out, a kind of Darwinian correction. There is just an unprecedented and untenable amount of content out there. But I do know that anything that's mediocre, that's secondary, is just going to have a hard time finding the oxygen. So I'm optimistic about the future. I think we're going to have stuff that is more targeted, more valuable, more useful to us, and less and less patience for pollution. You know, the cryogenically frozen idea makes me realize that, of course, 
one of the uh, great examples of that is Demolition Man, where uh, Wesley Snipes and Sylvester Stallone are cryogenically frozen. And when they wake up in the future, commercial jingles are a popular art form. People sing along with the Oscar Mayer song. They don't even know what an Oscar Mayer wiener is anymore, but they like the song. I'm going to have GE sponsored by cryogenic freezing. There you go. Uh, Listen, this is great. Uh, Thanks so much for talking to us, uh, Andrew Essex. Thanks for having me. The end of advertising. We'll be talking a little bit more about advertising when we come back from this break. All right, so uh, that was actually recorded yesterday. Now we're live. We're live in studio with Chris Knopf, a mystery novelist who is the chief executive officer for Minson Hoke in Avon until he retired from that job earlier this year. Already had a whoppingly successful mystery writing career right now. You want might want to pick up Backlash, uh, one of his most recent um, mysteries. And also joining us by phone, uh, Alexa Kristen, co-host of Panoply's Atlandia podcast, uh, episode nine of which may or may not be dropping today. Is episode nine dropping today? It's Yep, it's dropping today. All right, what's it about? Uh, we have the podcast host, Andrea Salenzi, who um, has a podcast called Why Oh Why, all about dating and relationships. Oh yeah. We really talked to her about, you know, it's a it's also a panoply podcast and we talked to her about where there are all these opportunities for brands to come in uh to the conversation and enable dating or the dating experience in a different way. All right. Well, um uh, we'll come back to that in just a second. So, uh Chris, uh, you were just listening to uh the conversation with Andrew. Um was he right? Did you get out just in time? Yes. <laughs> uh, actually, though, I, I actually find it kind of exciting and interesting the way uh, the fragmentation of uh, marketing communications. I mean, we've been living with this for a long time. So within the business, none of what he was saying would be news. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad it's getting out. Uh, so it, it really is. Uh, it, there's an awful lot of opportunity. There's an awful lot of struggle and strife at the same time. That's, those are, that's true of both sides. Which is also true with everything where the digital world has just upturned our lives. So when you say fragmentation, you're talking about we, we don't have a monoculture anymore. We don't even, don't even have a triculture anymore. We have kind of a polyculture. We have a polypolyculture. It's, yeah. it's incredibly uh, diverse. And the number of platforms on which you can promote. And uh, he said the, he calls his book the end of advertising. We always assumed advertising was any way you get your message out. Mm-hmm. So really it's the end of that, which you call, yeah, monocultural you know, uh, folk. You know, everybody in the country watching "I Love Lucy" sort of uh, model is, is is way gone. And not only is it fragmented, but things just keep coming up every minute. So it's almost impossible to keep track of all the different thing opportunities and platforms and 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 scams for that matter that are going on out there. So. Um, uh now, Alexa, I don't know if you, how much of um, Andrew's interview you could hear, but I mean, at one point he sort of said that really the 50 or 60 years when TV was driven by commercials and peppered and salted with commercials was sort of a historical anomaly, a blip from which we are now emerging and emerging into this brand new landscape of other ways to think about advertising. Is that mm-hmm. consistent with the attitudes of uh, Atlandia? I mean, I think so. And if you look at digital, and we've talked to to, to a lot of folks. We were um, in one of our episodes. We talked to um, the CRO of the Washington Post, Jed Hartman, and he was talking about how 
even digital advertising came out of the kind of remnant media. Um, and advertisers could only, it was kind of like what, what was left over from editorial. And I think that, um, you know, now we have an opportunity to kind of rewrite the rules and think differently about how experience can lead and pull people versus pushing them with advertising. So I think so, you know, the poly culture that you're talking about is absolutely here, here to stay. It's going to grow. Um, and how advertisers have advertisers really have an opportunity to think about advertising and really marketing in a, in a totally different way. Um, I talk about marketing, you know, um, to the whole person and really looking at, you know, magical points of intersection where brands can punch through and have real added value to an experience, a moment in your life, all of those things. And I think that that's even going to go further as we get into more kind of ambient uh, technology and, and infrastructure. Um, Chris, you know, before we totally tie a toe tag onto the old model, I mean, we have to acknowledge, one reason that I know the old model isn't completely dead, and it's a weird way to know it, is that periodically, uh, there are these uprisings in which advertisers announce that they are no longer going to sponsor the Bill O'Reilly show or they're never longer going to do this. Uh, Megyn Kelly is going to have Alex Jones on her show uh, this weekend. And already J.P. Morgan has said, well, they are not they are pulling their ads. So, I mean, and if this happen if this happens enough to say Bill O'Reilly, you really have a problem. You have a career crisis. So, I mean, we can't forget, right, that programming is still essentially supported by eyeballs and, and eardrums. Right, and it's not a, because it's not a zero-sum game. And uh, it takes a long time for a, whatever it is, $600 billion industry to, to stagger into the sunset. So TV is still very important. Broadcast TV is still very important. I mean, our agency uh, has quite a bit of, uh, planning and buying on, on broadcast advertising. It's important to our clients. So I, it's not going to go away tomorrow. We have hit the tipping point. Somebody probably knows. We, you know, we've crossed over the line of how many impressions are made on uh, television versus online and so forth. So it, it, and, but in coming decades, it, it'll, it'll, the, the, the traditional role will continue to dwindle maybe into nothing. <laughs> the, uh, so, so on the other hand, there are instances, and maybe this goes, has more to do with the dwindling into nothing than what preceded it. But Alexa, I know that you did a show about Amazon. Amazon is an interesting case because I, I don't. I mean, I guess there are maybe commercials for certain devices and stuff like that. But generally speaking, I don't, nobody's ever seen an Amazon commercial. Let's all use Amazon, right? They didn't really do it that way. No, they did. I mean, they they've had some ads, definitely. I mean, they they had an ad. Um, that was around the same time of, I want to say it was pre, it predated Pepsi, but it was close to the same time. They've done some ads, I mean, but very limited. And the thing that we talk about on the show is that they don't really have to. Right. Mm, and right. and the thing is, that, I mean, they're, they're, you know, advertising for them uh, in the traditional sense is not something that they have to do. Um, but I think, again, it's because they have what they've done, which is masterful with Prime mm -hmm. Video. Um, they bring people in. People stay. Uh, they continue to have Prime. They order products. Um, there's a large awareness. It's absolutely high value to, if you ask the average consumer. I think the New York Times did a piece recently, I don't know if either of you saw it, where they asked consumers, like, what, what tech company would you give up? Mm -hmm. Um 
And, you know, I think Amazon in aggregate ended up being um, like second to last of, right. of most people. Um, but so I think that Amazon's value is very, very well understood and very well known. Now, as they get into other spaces, um, will they have to do advertising? Potentially. Um, but right now, no. Well, I, I mean, they, I, they have a need for advertising. I just want to just push back against that one more time, too, because I mean, not to push back against it, but. But what are we really saying here? Are we saying, I think you might have even used a term, like so like experientially driven or something. That like This is a, a service, a company that people started, they just started using it. It was a better mousetrap, but they didn't have to tell the world that they had a better mousetrap. People just, yeah, or wait a minute, Chris has a theory about I'm gonna that. I'm going to weigh in here. Yeah, yeah because uh, <laughs> the uh, advertisers now are all talking about experiential you know, situations. Experiences of the brand, total immersion. Well, Amazon is a total immersion experience. And the way they structure their graphics, the way they have assembled the, the process of buying, all that, and the little pop-ups, the little thumbnails that mm. they, they throw at you and the reviews, it is a media experience in addition to being transactional. So they're the first ones that I think the most successful at merging those two qualities, which does obviate the need for any further um, communications, promotion. But but Alexa, it had to begin somehow. There must have been a day. There was a day when I didn't know what Amazon was. So how did I find lot, out? <laughs> a lot of it was through word of mouth, right? If you remember, they started as books, started as reading, right. by cheaper books. Um, and this was pre-iPad. This was pre-iPhone, um, where people were still reading physical and analog books. People are still doing that, right? Again, but the, the behavior has changed. Hmm. Um, and so I think it was it was really about word of mouth and having some kind of, you know, subscription model. And it was a value, right? It was dollar value. Um, so you were getting, you know, there was a proposed discount, basically. Um, and that's really how I think they started. And it was generally word of mouth. And a lot of, uh, of private equity and a lot of uh, lost leaders and... Uh... They took a big chance. They had huge mm-hmm. losses for a long time before they took off. I would just like to say just once that it's very disorienting to talk to someone named Alexa about Amazon. All right. Uh, I'll get that off my chest. Um, come, to my ha- come to my house. Yeah. It's hilarious. <laughs> I bet you it's very challenging. So, I, Chris, I just want to spend two minutes on something that's very near and dear to uh, our respective hearts. And we've even worked together uh, decades ago on some radio ads. So radio is sort of a little bit different than a lot of other media because a lot of times you can't, well, mostly you can't fast forward through radio. A lot of times you're in your car when a radio ad comes on. A lot of times um, a radio ad, and, and we'll, we'll swing back to Alexa in a second because podcasters are doing this now. Uh, I used to do a lot of live reads where the host basically incorporates the syntax and sense of the ad into the whole vibe of the show. Um, and I don't know. I always, first of all, I always had a lot of fun. <laughs> I loved doing commercials, uh, but it's a little bit different now. I, that might be a harder thing to kill in a way. It, yeah, it might be. Uh, it, it's still not the same old rules apply. The creativity has to be there. Uh, you take risks with creativity, so sometimes it can backfire on you, as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, production values do matter. Uh, there's still mostly 60-second spots, I think. A lot of them now are coming to 30 because attention spans are slow. Um, so it, it, the commercial radio, though, is also has its share of, shall we say, subpar uh, advertising that's mm-hmm. produced, the formulaic. <laughs> I mean, it sort of followed the track of a lot of commercial radio where they, you know, that a lot of the stuff is uh, canned 
And it mostly works, so as long as it works, you can't blame them for doing that. But uh, it, it is one of the most fertile grounds for creativity, of course, because it's the theater of the mind, and you don't have the, the advantage of visuals to carry along an idea. It was so much fun. It's a uh, lot of fun. All right, so Alexa, one of the places, particularly that idea of the live read, the live read has moved o- over to podcasting uh, quite a bit. There are a bunch of companies that advertise on a lot of podcasts, and, and they typically do have the host of the podcast do an ad in what we in radio would call a, li- a live read. And, and a lot of times the hosts will do what many of us who worked in commercial radio would do, which is personalize it. I mean, if you listen to the, you know, Pod Save America guys, they're like, you know, really working hard to incorporate whoever the advertiser is into their overall gestalt. Uh, So uh, maybe you can say a little bit more about that, Alexa. Obviously, it's very close to your heart and, and working hypothesis about reality. Yeah, no, absolutely. So my co-host and I, funny enough that you should bring it up, talked to Andrea that's on the episode that's dropping tonight about that. And one thing that Laura Crenti, who's my co-host, brought up was why are brands still treating live reads the way they've always treated live reads? So essentially, if you're in the radio or podcasting space, you get a few bullet points, you know, some key core points that you need to hit. But what's happening is that a lot of hosts are naturally putting their personality into it. Laura and I have done the same thing, whether it's been with Casper Mattress or HelloFresh. We've tried these products. We talk about them in a way that's natural to the show, opportunities for brands. I think that brands have a huge opportunity to reinvent what advertising looks like, sounds like um, in this space um, and really use, quote, unquote, the audio, right, talent, and who are essentially influencers, right? Um, to really put their personality in and maybe not just do live reads. I mean, it turns into things like more demos. And, you know, Andrea gives an example of what she, uh, on YLY, what she did with one of her friends. She brought one of her friends in to talk about Squarespace in a really smart and funny way. Um, So I think the opportunity to look at talent as talent and use them and use their personality to really create almost entertainment pods, if you will, that have some kind of brand message or, you know, direct marketing um, offer or something like that uh, is going to be something that we see in the future a lot. I think the IAB came out with a study, I want to say last year, that they were saying, you know, uh, podcast listeners have 63% or 60% um, more awareness um, than other advertising. So, I mean, then podcasting and audio are actually really intimate, especially podcasting. People are choosing to put you into their ears and their headphones and choosing to subscribe to you and choosing to download you so that they definitely have an affinity, you would hope, um, for for the hosts and the talent. So I think we'll see a lot more of, of, of the talent and hosts working directly with brands to, to write to write the creative and work with them on something that's more unique. All right, so we're going to take a quick break right now. You might even hear some underwriting. Uh, We're going to take a quick break right now. We'll come back. We'll talk more about the uh, past, future, life, and death of advertising.
commercials are dead. But what do I do with all my recurring nightmares about the Lunesta moth? Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, the pants that refreshes, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish has changed her last name to Farfignugan. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mr. Whipple. On tomorrow's show, get ready to be irritated by our annual Song of the Summer show. And now, back to Colin. All right, so we're talking about advertising. Uh, we're talking about commercials. We're talking about what they will morph into or maybe not morph into. Um, we're talking to, uh, about that uh, with Alexa Kristen, uh, a co-host of Panoply's Adlandia podcast. Uh, I, as the name denotes, uh, obviously a uh, podcast uh, about the whole world of marketing and advertising. Uh, Chris Knopf is a mystery novelist who was a chief executive officer for Minson Hoke and Avon for many years until he retired from that job earlier this year. So now if you want, Chris, uh, go out and get his books, uh, including Backlash, uh, one of his latest mysteries. All right. So, um, so many things uh, to, to still talk about. So, well, let's talk about the Pepsi ad. All right, so there's this uh, Pepsi ad that I think everybody knows about. It involves Kendall Jenner. It involves uh, trying to awaken people's um, political sympathies or link Pepsi somehow to social consciousness. Um, and um, actually, I'll start with you, Alexa. I mean, one theory about this, the, the most you know prevalent theory is this whole thing was a mockable disaster. Was it really a mockable disaster for Pepsi? I think it's a great question. Uh, Laura and I talk about this on the show, and we debated talking about it because it was it was something that caused so much discussion. Um, I think was it mockable? Was it do- was it done well? No, there were problems. Um, were they trying to create a global ad? Yes, and I think that you know what marketers have encountered in the last few years is that you know companies like Pepsi, et cetera where global companies are trying to create global messages that resonate. And instead of doing something that's authentically maybe local or putting people um, in that are local celebrities or have a tie to the content that they're talking about, like really putting context around that content, I think that what it was seen as was something that was really tone deaf. Um, I think that Pepsi is a company that, in their advertising has always reflected culture. They don't maybe lead culture, but they've been a reflection of culture. And to me, they, they stayed true to themselves as trying to be a reflection of culture, but the execution just fell short. Well, I mean, Chris, is part of the problem, I mean, it gets back to what um, I was talking to with Andy earlier, that the audience... The audience doesn't like to feel manipulated. The audience likes to feel, I mean, I think there was a time when you could tell people about waxy yellow buildup and they would go, oh, really, waxy yellow buildup? I should do something about that. And I mean, you could make up things that weren't real problems and then sell them products that would fix these problems. And people were, you know, people were a little more trusting probably at one one point. Maybe part of the problem with Pepsi is that they were trying to make a kind of false linkage between Pepsi and a whole bunch of social consciousness issues. They were using the unlikely Kendall Jenner as a way of doing it. And people just just thought, well, no, I'm just smarter than that. Yeah, well, it, that, that sort of emotional manipulation is really good if you do it really well, and they did it terribly. Um, so the execution itself was, every bit of it was wrongheaded. You know, and a lot of people, you know, after that were writing and saying, what were they thinking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I think what I think what they were thinking is groupthink. Mm-hmm. Uh, the agency that produced it was an in-house agency with Pepsi. doesn't mean that they can't do really fine work. But it puts you a, a step closer to 
the marketing people and the business people and so forth who are big and powerful and are paying your salary uh, and who also, you know, who may be trying hard to be clever and doing something out of the box. So they, they, they kind of creates this false atmosphere of, well, we're really being clever and creative here. And, um, you know, we're helping our creative people do something that's out of the box and all that. And they're just kind of talking to each other. Uh, and the other thing is perplexing is that in a lot of these big package goods uh, advertising campaigns, there's a ton of market research. There's a ton of creative testing. There's focus groups and all that. And one would think that that would save you from a catastrophe like this. But a couple of things, one of which is you storyboard, uh, you test something off a storyboard, you're not really testing it. It's really difficult to get a true reading. The other thing is that, um, you know, the, the people who do the testing can make a recommendation, but the people who are paying the bills, they can say, yeah, I know, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so this is what happens because they all, they're all feeling all excited about it. And uh, so you take a chance with cause marketing is what we call it when, you, when you're attaching yourself to some social issue. If you do it well, it can be fantastic. If you screw it up, it can really, really hurt you. And I think it hurt Pepsi. You know, Alexa, that whole done in-house thing is something that you guys explore on the podcast. Um, yeah. and, and it's it's complicated, too, because it's kind of the reverse of the paradigm that maybe we think of even in terms of Mad Men or something, which is like this advertising agency, these, this wild and crazy guy from Minson Hoke shows up with this idea and the company goes, oh, no, that's not us at all. We know who we are. That's not us. You can't do that. I mean, shouldn't the people in-house know <laughs> what Pepsi is and how to sell it? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I also think, you know, there were... There were critics who said, well, that's what happens when you use an in-house agency. I think, Chris, you were saying that's the, that's the opposite of what should happen. I agree with that. I actually think that that's unfair. Um, marketers and creatives in-house should actually have more of a sense of the brand and what makes sense um, and, you know, that cultural context that's so important. But I think it's worth saying that, like, was this really cause marketing? Uh, for me, it was not cause marketing. It was using a social issue, a reflection of really what's become popular culture right now, um, and it just was the wrong way in. It was um, just the wrong way in for them. They weren't actually saying anything meaningful about what was happening in, in protests all over the world and social unrest and all of those things. They were using it as a, you know, as a hook, uh, and it's a it's such a meaningful and you know, a hook that's so emotional for people that I think that it was quickly rejected. So we're almost out of time. And I, one of the things as we were talking about this, getting ready for the show, uh, I find myself thinking about is, if Chris, if there's a brand whose name I didn't know a certain amount of time ago that I know really well right now because TV advertising, it's Geico, all right? There was a time I... Geico has its this obscure origin story that I won't even go into. But, I mean, you know, they spend... They must spend like the gross domestic product of Guyana, you know, most years on advertising. So that would be an example. I, I don't know how effective it, it must be effective, but they would they wouldn't keep doing it. Well, they yeah, I think the last number I saw was a half a billion dollars. Mm. So frequency really does matter. And in fact, you can just uh, just to say some sort of explicit direct thing, and if you say it enough, it's going to get into people's heads. I will say that Geico can be very clever. Yeah. I think their advertising is not only pervasive, but it's 
it has been on the whole very creative and compelling, and it has that entertainment value that people have been talking about that almost get, transcends the the message. Right. I mean, I, I there's a cartoon in last week's New Yorker where a couple is talking, and one of them is saying, "I think we need to shop around for a funnier insurance company." Uh, and to me, like I don't know, I just look at Geico and I think those ads are built into my premiums. <laughs> <laughs> there, there must be some you know way that I could probably do better than that. They don't make me want to get Geico, but I'm, I might be in a minority. Hey, right before we run out of time, Alexa, one concern I have, and you guys, Landy, would be on the cutting edge of this, is that really nobody really knows how advertising is going to work at all, and, and nobody can really imagine the future of five years down the road. So people go to all these meetings in Stockholm and Marfa, Texas, and they talk about hashtag growth hacking and use a whole bunch of terms that I don't understand. And I mean, does, do you really feel that with some confidence that there there is a, an understandable, discernible future through all the smoke and fog right now? I mean, I think if we look at, you know, Walt Mossberg of Recode had this amazing article um, and his, his, his final column, and he talks about ambient technology and how he thinks we're moving into that space. And I agree with him. I think we're moving into that space and I think we're moving into a place where our lives are going to be programmed. And so the window for opportunity of brands to actually add value is going to narrow um, and advertise is going to narrow. Now, is this happening in two years? Probably not. Is it happening in five years? Probably not totally. But I think what we're going to see is a force and a shift coming from the consumer side, that brands have to add value, not just push me a message. Chris, you can have like, I don't know, 30 seconds. The dark side of that is that all this targeting, which is becoming more and more uh, effective and efficient through the digital world, is kind of isolating us, not just as in culturally, but as individuals. So your, your interest in life, Colin, uh, it could be a time when that's all you see and hear because they're targeting you. So you don't get to know what your son's interested in, and you don't get to branch out. Oh, he'll make sure I get to know what he's interested in. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks very much to both of you. This is a wonderful conversation, uh, and we remain uh, hopeful in an appropriate way for advertising. Alexa Kristen is uh, co-host of Panoply's Adlandia podcast. Chris Knopf is a mystery novelist, uh, former big, huge honcho uh, at Minson Hoke in Avon, from which he retired. So go read Backlash. Enjoy your summer. Read a mystery novel by Chris. Yeah, the only one who's laughing is the advertising. I don't know, Doc. The antidepressants, they're not really working. I've got increased appetite, weight gain, dry mouth, fatigue. Well, have you tried watching the commercials for antidepressants? They're very uplifting. <laughs>